Culture eats strategy for lunch, and informed cultures drive decisions and inspire action. At the Data Culture Podcast, we talk with execs, visionaries, and data culture experts so that you may move from idea to outcome in your own data culture journey. Welcome to the Data Culture Podcast. My name is Sid Atkinson, data culture innovator and consulting leader with over 21 years in data. And I'm Lee Harper, AI human with a decade doing AI. With us today is Kevin Petrie. Kevin is a vice president at Eckerson Research Group, a well-known uh, in the data space for advisory and research, uh, along with a lot of published papers, published papers and, and ideas. Uh, Kevin, we're excited to have you today. Thank you, Sid and Lee. Great to be here. Kevin, again, thanks for um, uh, offering to be on our podcast. I, there's so many topics that we could talk about, and I say that so many times I hear myself on, oh, there's so many things. So I'm going to have to come up with a new intro line for the guests. But out of the great many things that Eckerson Group that y'all advise on, there was a couple of topics that we did gravitate towards. And obviously with ChatGPT and an explosion of interest from the broader market, there's a lot of things that we need to advise folks on so that they do these well. And one of those that we talked about was this kind of strategy for managing and delivering data for language models. And so you know, talk us for a little bit on why is this a focus and interest for you right now? Sure. As we all know, the world in the tech world shifted somewhat in November 2022 with the release by OpenAI of ChatGPT version 3 or 3.5. And the world's knowledge workers and consumers alike started to experience firsthand the power of AI, generative AI in particular. And that's spawned quite a frenzy of innovation within the technology vendor community and increasingly within Fortune 2000 enterprises and mid-sized companies to figure out how they can take advantage of generative AI. The, a lot of the excitement sense around, centers around what we call a, a language model, which is essentially a neural network whose uh, interconnected nodes share inputs and outputs as they um, learn to summarize and in fact generate text. And so I think that there are a lot of compelling, risky but compelling opportunities for companies to take advantage of generative AI because they can use it to improve productivity and over the medium term gain competitive advantage. Yeah, and so you... I think very intentionally said risk, mm -hmm. right? In that pursuit of an opportunity and the things to do more. And so I think that managing that risk aspect is one of the reasons that you are looking at, well, what should strategies be for managing data that's fed into these models and how might you take advantage? So I guess, give us a preview on where you are on your thinking and your research on this. Like what are the kind of the questions that people should be asking and how, how might they be thinking and taking advantage of these things at scale. Because I think it's really when you get to the, both the scale, although I said, as soon as I said the scale aspect, there's been individual instances that have introduced lots of risk. It doesn't always have to be scale that introduced risk. So maybe just to me, they've more open-ended question to you then. You, you mentioned very specifically strategies for managing the data. So what are those things that people should be thinking about? How do you get started in framing both the opportunity and the risk you need to manage? Sure. There are a lot of public platforms, commercial and open source, ChatGPT from OpenAI, Bard from Google, there's Bloom from Hugging Face and, and a number of others, Claude from Anthropic. 
And these all have chat interfaces that folks can use to ask a variety of questions and receive dizzyingly fast and articulate, grammatically correct answers on a range of topics. And so I think that companies are rightly recognizing the ability to create an intelligent conversational interface to engage their customers or partners or suppliers or potentially employees. And so the, the opportunity, there are a number of opportunities, but one of them is to start to figure out, okay, if I can start to improve my customer service by having more intelligent conversations with them on a real-time basis, or simply enabling my humans, Lee, by the way, I, I like your self-reference as a, a human, AI human. If we have humans that take advantage of these language models uh, in the background, they can have much more intelligent conversations with their customers. So that's one example of, of use cases that can become compelling across a variety of sectors, uh, primarily sectors in which the this product or the service or the nature of the interaction between company and individual and customer involves some complexity. Um, that's one batch of use cases and opportunities. Another one is related to document processing. There are a lot of uh, processes related to insurance claims, mortgage applications, um, things like that, where you have a fair amount of text that needs to be processed in various documents. And there are ways in which the, the technology, the core technology within OpenAI uh, and others can help with that. It can help intelligently draft content that humans, I think, still need to oversee, but it can greatly accelerate their productivity. What we see is that there are three kind of stages right now of adoption. One, most knowledge workers and companies are doing, which is that employees are using ChatGPT and other and similar platforms to improve their productivity at work. They're drafting emails, they're referring to it, asking questions. If they're doing it, they're vetting very carefully to make sure the facts are right in the output, but they're using it to improve in productivity. The next phase, which is already underway, is doing effectively <laughs> the same thing, but using it as a function, a language model function within larger tools, such as Einstein GPT within Salesforce, Joule within SAP, uh, Copilot within GitHub. There are numerous examples of these Copilot offerings. Mm -hmm. The third phase is where you get past productivity gains and you could really build competitive advantage. And that's where I think companies are moving surprisingly quickly to figure out, okay, how do I take language model technology and weave it into proprietary workflows that uh, will include other types of technologies too, business intelligence, operations, and so forth, but start to really enrich the ways in which companies run their business. And that's, that's the, the next phase that is starting now and becomes compelling. I think for anyone, any type of business leader who wants to figure out how to play this to their advantage. And I think that looking forward to that third phase, I imagine is is why then this interest of of yours and Eckerson's and talking to clients and to and advising on the strategies, right? Like how if I am going to start feeding this like my personal information, like personal as in the company, right? And like 
start building out and utilizing this. I need to have a strategy for doing that. So as you're seeing people getting this third wave um, of things as you've described, what are you seeing that was unexpected that folks are running into, as well as then the expected that you already knew to write about and advise on? Well, it, it is interesting. I think <laughs> I've been surprised at how fast the adoption's taking place. I, I, I was surprised mm-hmm. at how fast, as a case study, data engineers early this year started using ChatGPT and, and others to do their jobs, to document their data environments, to generate draft pipeline code. That adoption's been pretty rapid. Something that doesn't surprise me, but I think is going to get a lot more attention, is that companies are rightly starting to realize they they don't have the right governance in place to ensure high quality inputs mm-hmm. to to these language models. So we did a survey on LinkedIn and found that 46% of respondents said, my company does not have sufficient governance and data quality controls to support my AI ML initiatives, including generative AI. Uh, tw- only 23% said, yes, we have the right controls in place. The rest were somewhere in between figuring it out or maybe, or I should say partially. Um, so that's been one, I think, aha, that the industry is going to have to come to term with because you want to make sure that you're managing the risks, including hallucinations, getting facts wrong. Uh, they include mishandling intellectual property, inadvertently exposing private information, personally um, inadvertently running afoul of regulations, or also inadvertently exhibiting bias against certain parties because of the type of data that the models are either trained on or prompted with. And what are the differences from a data management perspective on these models compared to perhaps more traditional applications of machine learning, advanced analytics, even deep learning is previously we'd have had NLP stored in say a Cosmos DB or some other NoSQL database, but it would still have been pulled out and sitting in some kind of tabular structure with unstructured data in that. Now people want to draw directly from, from PDFs. They want the source to be the PDF. They want the source to be a Word doc. They want the source to be somewhere on SharePoint, somewhere on some other enterprise content management platform. And that's causing all kinds of interesting challenges with how do I extract that to a place the AI model can see, which typically will be S3, Azure, Blob, or an equivalent data lake structure. Um, how do I do that repeatably? Because a lot of these ECMs don't necessarily have nice triggers to trigger things to pull into these places. And then how do I, how do you crack a PDF? That's a non-trivial question even today. What have you been seeing from how people manage that content, like across your research areas? Um, great question. Yeah, I agree that a lot of the feeder content's going to be coming from PDFs, uh, from Word documents, Google Docs, from emails, customer service records. Uh, within CRM databases or applications. And so it's a hodgepodge. And we are seeing uh, companies get more serious about uh, creating effectively a new data pipeline for for the text that in a lot of cases, they haven't been taking the right advantage of because they it wasn't structured. It was washing around in the enterprise. It's hard to really make sense of a bunch of emails or snippets from customer conversations. But what they want to do now is try to put that into, in a lot of cases, a vector database. And so that the chain of events, and there are some pipeline tools that are off supporting this now, Prophecy, Unstructured.io, 
in Airbiter 3 that come to mind. So what, what you can do is you can have, you have the text files, you're going to tokenize it, convert it to um, a tokenized document. An example would be a, a CSV file where you're essentially breaking up each word or a string of words or punctuation mark into what's called a token. Then you're going to chunk it so that words that go together, stay together. It might well be a full document or a paragraph or something. Then you're going to take those chunks and embed them as vectors into a vector database. And so those embeddings have a fair amount of intelligence that help show how all these different chunks and tokens, all these words relate to each other. And those interrelationships of all the words are what you want to have be reflected in the vector database. And so I think the vector database is going to be so, uh, a common destination for a lot of this information. And the way it will be surfaced is that the vector databases will support language models with uh, retrieval augmented generation or RAG as it's called in the industry. So the RAG will essentially, when a question comes in from a user, RAG will the application will query the vector database, pull up relevant information, relevant chunks, documents, and so forth, put it into the prompt and ask the language model to find the answer. So it's essentially an open book test. You reduce the likelihood of a hallucination or something. If you're feeding it governed documents that you have confidence in and you give ChatGPT a book about presidents and you say, give me a 200 word biography of Abraham Lincoln and find it in this book, then it's probably going to give you a good answer. So that's a long-winded way of saying that I think a lot of people are going to standardize on these pipelines that take advantage of vector databases and support the RAG model. Yeah. And I think, Kevin, there is a, on a related note, a paper that you just published recently, I think it was at the behest of Informatica, but at the same time, it was yeah. vendor neutral. So if you don't mind, just I give a quick preview on that for the folks that want to look that up and go find it because it's it relates to what we're talking about today. Yeah, thank you, Sid. So this uh, report is uh, Govern Data Management to Support Generative AI. That's the theme and the focus. And the thesis is that, building on my point earlier, a lot of companies are not ready for generative AI and don't have the systems in place yet to govern, uh, validate, vet, and transform data so that it can be used in generative AI applications. And so I think that gen AI ambitions will be, on the one hand, they'll collide with this reality of, for lack of a better term, bad data, uh, incomplete data, inconsistent, wrong, it, you name it. There are a lot of data quality issues out there. That's been a problem for decades. Most in analytics initiatives so far for most mainstream enterprises are focused on structured data, tables, rows and columns, or semi-structured things like log files. But now we're in the world of text in a lot of cases for generative AI, and that's even more of a wild west. So companies need to figure out, okay, how do I start to transform, govern, and then deliver multi-structured data spanning text, spanning tables, semi-structured data into into a repository such as a vector database so i can support my language model initiatives so what i do in the report is unpack what does it really look like to have governed data management of multi-structured data to support gen ai initiatives 
And I look at things like observability of data quality, master data management, make sure that you're using consistent pronouns. Mm -hmm. That's an important thing <laughs> because you want to make sure that when you're not yeah. sending the right email to the wrong customer, vice versa. Um, and it yeah. includes ingestion, data transformation, things like that too. So there's an architectural approach to vetting all that data and then feeding into these workflows. Another key point is that I think Gen AI and language models are going to be features within workflows. They're not going to be the end game. Uh, in a lot of cases, mm -hmm. if you generate fantastic intelligence text for a customer, you want to wrap it around a fact from a table. There are a lot of ways in which uh, you need to have a coexistence of a relational database containing tables with a graph database containing a lot of nodes and edges with a, language, a vector database containing a lot of vectorized text. And all that comes together to feed these rich workflows based on multi-structured data. One of the interesting things it, it very much or very related to what you just said is what generative AI is popping up as what at times can feel like new conversations, but are in many cases old conversations, or the need for those older conversations to have come to a conclusion and then an action. And a good example of that is folks are discovering or rediscovering the content that exists that they have in their corpus of documents that are in, inside, inside the boundary walls of what, however they're managing, whether that's in SharePoint or something else. And, and it is then perceived to be a risk because, oh my God, this thing knows about it. But search already existed and knew about this and people could find and search for it. And so now I, I have to imagine that there are several um, enterprise content management type consultants that are laughing right now and one, oh gosh, if you had just listened to us and taken these enterprise content management strategies to heart back in the day. But at the same time, as I get it why they didn't do it. They, the cost to do ECM in many cases, without regulatory pressure, the cost to do it was high. And sometimes the benefit was lower because it wasn't easy to make use of the unstructured data. And so this is where the wetware processes became and that domain knowledge became so important. So it's, it's just hard to extract that. Now we're seeing that we have this whole world opening up where now it is going to be easier to extract that knowledge out of this unstructured universe and actually un unpack it in a cost, cost efficient to us. It wasn't cost efficient to build ChatGPT, but cost efficient to us <laughs> to unpack and use that. So what do you... What do you see out of that old ECM world that's going to impact people now? Because you talked a lot about the ability for companies going forward to start taking and putting, moving beyond productivity and into competitive advantage, competitive advantage using knowledge they have, competitive advantage using information that they own and manage, and getting into more of this domain-specific, even like inside domain-specific, no, not, my, not only my domain is maybe a manufacturer, but my domain as like a manufacturer of auto parts or something like that, right? Now you... You have this new capability to exist. Where do you see that world going? And, and what is maybe the old, the, the older and established ECM practices have an impact on that? Yeah, great question. Really good point. I was at OpenText World just recently, and, and a lot of these issues are very much at the forefront. They're very focused on generative AI and using that as a way to take advantage of, help companies take advantage of documents that they've been managing for a long time. I think this is the point at which data governance people get to, it's like parents that say to their kids, I really, I was telling you to brush your teeth 
my 10 year old doesn't like to brush his teeth. <laughs> and, and, and now he's sitting in the dentist chair and he has to get a uh, filling and he doesn't want it. Yeah, if you listened and brush your teeth every night, we would have been okay. I think there are a lot of aspects of data management and governance where we all know we should eat our vegetables, but we don't really want to. And eventually it, it catches up with us. I think that the, the short answer is that if you take the very, the, the best practices of document management and you start to, it, it, it gives you higher confidence in the quality of what you have. It gives you rich metadata to help feed the parameters in the language model. And it gives you good feeder material to put into the training process. If you're going to fine tune a language model, maybe train brand new ones, although that will be rare at this point in my view, beyond the sort of very large vendors. And it gives you the ability to feed it into vector databases to support retrieval augmented generation. So there are a lot of synergies, but there are a lot of ways in which enterprise content management becomes as renaissance people will go back and say okay now i'm going to get serious about how i handle this stuff because it, it really matters to the business kevin what do you see for clients looking for these strategies for managing coming back to there's a bigger world on what everybody needs to manage and look at and so how do i one articulate what that world is and then where do you see people starting in establishing or putting in better practices than what they have today? Yeah, great question. As with all things tech and data, it starts with business strategy and objectives. And Lulls. Uh, it should. <laughs> there's a talented group of folks. Yeah. It, it really <laughs> <Yes>. does. <laughs> it's funny because often in our reports, we, we emphasize, start with business objectives. And I, and I say it's a cliche, but it bears repeating because a lot of, we're, we're techie people. We get excited about tech. We start with science experiments that might have no business objective. So in a perfect world, we start with business objectives, with strategy. And there's a, a group, Paul Baer and John Sviokla, another fellow at the Insights put together, I thought a pretty interesting article that they published in Harvard Business Review. I want to say it was in October um, about uh, the WINS framework, words, images, numbers, and sounds. And inevitably a two by two matrix, but the idea is that in essence, if your, if your job, if your company's business value is based and its cost structure is based on words and manipulating words, images, numbers, or sounds, then to varying degrees, you're going to be disrupted by generative AI. And you need to start asking hard questions about what that means mm -hmm. to you. How do you avoid getting marginalized and how do you add new value? And so you put it on two, two axes, one looking at revenue and one looking at cost. So there's, that's a way to start. Hmm. There's no easy way to summarize all the strategic company questions companies need to ask in different sectors and different geographies about what Gen AI means to them. But once you come up with ideally some narrow achievable use cases that are based on solving proven pain in a modular way, then you can start to tackle things. And so I cited the examples of document processing, customer uh, service as two ways in which companies could start to have some pilots and start to improve the level of automation and the level of artificial intelligence. The, as as a, a quick point, the notion of customer service, 
is a bit of a double-edged sword because I think there are a lot of indicators that customer satisfaction is, it bounced up some after COVID, but it's still a lot lower than it was 10, 15 years ago. And The Economist had a good article about this. And in my view, chatbots have not really helped <laughs> customer relationships. Now, ideally, <laughs> chat GPT, or I should say any type of language model, driven workflow can start to improve customer service in the chatbot realm. But it might be as simple as making humans more intelligent while they engage people. So you want to be careful. You want to do it right. You want to start small, get some achievable success, easing pain that everyone agrees on with executive buy-in. And from that, you can win the political capital and ideally the budget to move on from that initial beachhead of success. But as the age old adage goes, start with why, right? There it's, you go. Start with why. <laughs> start with why. It's the thing, as you mentioned, it oft needs repeating. And yet it's like, how do we not repeat it? Because so many people just will skip that step, but yeah. skip the step of how, what is the purpose of the innovation that we're pursuing? How does it map out to like how we exist as a company and what do we do? And it's interesting. There's many, if you look at several kinds of, uh, uh, ventures, business ventures of like tenure, and I'm talking about 60, 80 years, right? Sony has famously started off doing toasters, right? Like the entire purpose of Sony was actually to glorify and raise up the profile of the Japanese culture. It wasn't actually for any one particular business purpose. And now we see that they oh, can okay. create many things That's, and, and they've just done fantastic at it. But it's interesting if we forget like the why and to go back and revisit that, it's very easy to get lost in doing what and how because we are fascinated by that aspect of it. And it can lead folks down incorrect rabbit holes. So I love the fact that you echo that sentiment. Couldn't agree more. <laughs> we got to figure out yes. with these powerful new options in front of us, what, how should they best be applied, right? Keeping the customer in mind, keeping the constituents, of, or if you're a government institution, keeping the constituents in mind on what you're trying to do is make sure that the net benefit you're seeking is, is both positive and, and Positive for them and positive for you. Which also then isn't the question. Yeah, I agree. Of being responsible with these things as well. And I'm curious, Kevin, on what you've seen and what your opinions are on various frameworks or even just principles for being responsible with these, like anything, right? This is powerful stuff, which could be used for good or ill as people choose. Yeah, I think a principle of doing no harm while not a new principle, there's a lot of weight here. And so organizations want to start by saying, let's not move fast and break things. Let's make sure we're very careful. And then let's assess risk on a few different uh, dimensions. I mentioned, I think it was five risks of inherited generative AI. There's accuracy, i.e. hallucinations. There's bias. There's uh, exposure of sensitive or you know, privacy breaches. There is compliance risk, and and I, I think I did I mention bias already. Mm -hmm. So there are, there are a lot of different ways in which these risks need to be assessed. And then there's also customer satisfaction. I'm talking about customers a lot because that'll be a common use case. But efficiency: Are you going to improve efficiency or not? And so once you start to evaluate on each of these dimensions what the risk is, and then what the reward is you can start to make a more intelligent decision about how to proceed. The big benefits, business benefits, I think are uh, employee productivity, 
operational efficiency and then competitive advantage, which, which in a lot of ways gets down to delighting customers or moving faster to take advantage of new markets, new opportunities, new customer relationships. And I'm curious. So it gets back to a lot of risk and reward analysis. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm also curious because there's a, an emerging set of issues in a number of regulatory environments, Europe primarily, as often happens, um, about copyright, the data yeah. to train these things, um, both the ethics and the um, legal ramifications of just scraping the internet, scraping people's artwork, people's essays, people's novels. Um, Amazon's put, I think, a three books a day limit on publishing because of all these GPT generated books that are swamping Amazon oh, yeah. sales off, off, yeah, often with actual authors' names attached who actually haven't written them themselves. What do you see as, <laughs> yeah, we, we laugh, but it's, it's happening. Do you think businesses are going to start to look at model provenance as well as a risk side? Or do you think that risk lies mostly with the actual providers themselves or a mixture of all of them? And what's, do you have a, uh, great do you have question. a key point there? Yeah, great question. I think that my understanding is that some of the bigger vendors already have, and I don't have the right legal term, announced plans that would, that would reduce or eliminate the responsibility of people who use ChatGPT as an example. I think it's indemnity, I believe it's the, in, in, indemnity. Thank you. Yes. That's right. the word they're using. A lot of mainstream users will be indemnified, but that doesn't mean you, you still want to do it. And there will be legal and legislative events that take place that'll start to figure, sort this out. In the meantime, it really underscores the need to have, if you're going to be in, in one of the first two phases, which is your knowledge workers use ChatGPT or your knowledge workers use Einstein GPT within Salesforce. If those, if that's what you're doing, your workers, those humans, those AI humans still need to be held individually responsible for what they do. And they are the throat to choke. And so I think that's a agreement right now, but I think companies might want to make it explicit. Um, that's one thought. Another is as you move to stage three, where you're embedding language models into proprietary workflows to gain competitive advantage, you, you really want to get back to the, the fundamentals of prompting it or possibly fine tuning it, the language model on your data, on your domain specific data that ideally you have high confidence in the accuracy of and the propriety of so that you're thereby not running to the wrong conclusions, or I should say running to generating outputs that have that liability because they're using stuff off the internet. And I think when we look at some of the strategies that you're talking about and, and trying to drop seeds so that hopefully they, they bear fruit in the customer's mind or in the, in the public's mind around you know, strategies for this data management. It is in looking forward to what is going to be this next wave of Gen AI, and that is the domain-specific area. What There's going to be a lot of our listeners who are very well aware of domain-specific uh, LLMs, and a lot of folks that this is going to be new to them. How would you couch these ideas and what's happening um, in this? I guess what I would say is that uh, there, there are ways to get up to speed on the basic technology um, and the description I had before of essentially treating words as a vast set of 
individual entities that have numerical relationships to one another. We're basically talking about a massive calculator that figures out the interrelationships of words within a pretty large corpus of text. Possibly everything scraped from the internet or possibly a encyclopedia or lots of things in between. And so the, the, there's a need to get up to speed on the basic technology. And then there's a, a need to get up to speed onto the risks and rewards. An important shift when we talk about domain specific models, uh, language models, I've been using the term language models here. And the reason is that at Eckerson group, we differentiate between large language models and what we call small language models. And large language models are like they sound based on large volumes of text, not as large as you might think, but billions or even a trillion or more parameters, which are individual numerical values that help describe the interrelationships of all these words and all these other types of images potentially too, or other types of data points. And so the large language models are the big ones trained on billions or, or even a trillion parameters. ChatGPT, Bloom, Hugging Face, well, Bloom is from Hugging Face, and uh, Claude and so forth. The, what I think is going to be happening is when we go to phase three, we're getting to small language models. And small language models might well have LLM logic in them, but they are cure, they're, they're, uh, fine-tuned or prompted with much smaller sets of data, domain-specific data, often enterprise internal data. And that's where the scope of what you're trying to do is not go big, but rather go small on data that you can get right. So I think the small language model coming boom is going to be much more additive to productivity, to governance, and to, and to a competitive advantage. The irony is going back to the theme here of things coming back around. That's what we've been doing for the last 10 years in language modeling is building small neural networks or other things based on proprietary data. ChatGPT almost like generalized this problem by all the emergent phenomena that it, due to its size. And now we're saying, you know what, maybe we had a th good thing going when we we're building smaller models on our actual data that we understood and could manage well and did all this stuff. I know I, I laugh and so it's, hey, look, kids, dad's cool again. Data modeling's a hot topic. Yay. There you go. <laughs> like, <laughs> hey, as I get to be cool once a decade, right? I'm going to live it. But yeah. The, but on that, Kevin, just to help some folks that, again, imagine like the possibilities here. So one of the stats, because Lee and I have done work in the past with, say, utilities and some other areas where you're seeing a lack of um, applicants and entries into that market. So particularly the both um, water utilities are really lacking new, in, new folks coming in and the die off, the, the retirement wave that's going to be hitting over the next 10 to 15 years is going to really put a crimp on our ability to continue things. And what do you see or if, if in anybody that's in this kind of industry where there is a wave that might hit on all this knowledge that retires and leaves the workforce, and we're going to need to multiply the efforts of the few and, or quickly ramp up the knowledge of the ones that we entice in, which is ideally what happens. We entice new in, what do you see as the opportunities here? Oh, that's a really interesting look at the demographic trends. I have a, a good friend who's a computer science professor, and we were having a really engaging discussion about chat GPT and cheating among his students and trying to figure it all out. And he said, you know what, I'm really glad I'm retiring <laughs> yeah. at the end of the year. 
It's, it's not going to be his problem. <laughs> My dad said the same thing to me recently. He retired yeah. in June. And yeah, there's going to be a definite generational shift in on a lot of different dimensions. The, the coming wave, uh, which is good, is that I, I, we have three boys, um, age 10 to 17. They don't know a world without AI. They've always thought Alexa's humorous. We don't have Alexa, but they think Siri's humorous and all that. So they have a comfort level with AI mm -hmm. and a comfort level with comment, with conversational interfaces that, that I don't have. They rarely type things into their phones. Mm -hmm. They're speaking into it. So there will be a new wave of people who are going to be just predisposed to get smarter on this stuff faster because they don't have as much baggage as guys like me. And I never thought I'd feel old until ChatGPT came out. But then you're right. Okay. So the other <laughs> side of this is that you've got massive uh, uh, retirements, waves of uh, baby boomers, and a lot of people who have domain-specific knowledge. In our industry, the classic example is mainframe. Those mainframes are not going to go away. And I tell my kids, if you want perpetual job security <laughs> and a really lucrative career, learn how to handle mainframes. Because all the guys who did it and know how to do it are retiring. <laughs> and then within the all sorts of manufacturing fields or anything in, in involving different operational realities, I think there there's a lot of uh, tribal knowledge and domain knowledge that we're going to lose soon. So I love the notion, if this is what you're recommending, Sid, mm -hmm. is that we can start to use AI to replicate that knowledge, to codify it, but then also to uh, empower uh, the people who do know what they're doing to amplify what they can contribute to the workforce and the economy. Well, and a friend of mine works for a group that uses, that has a lot of COBOL stuff knocking around. COBOL is a language that people, even at my age, don't know, let alone depend in the workforce. And yet these models have actually proven pretty adept at writing a pretty good first pass at COBOL. So that's a nice gap it can fill as well. And one that it, we know these things write good code. It's a established use case. It's funny that you mentioned like the kit, the generation today and their ease at which they interact with these things. Cause I was laughing internally, as you said that, because on our oldest, the very first thing he suggested. So he was the first one in the family to know that, Hey, mom's pregnant, second kid's on the way. And so we let him process that at dinner one night. And he's like, so what's it going to be a boy or a girl? So we don't know you. It's too early. He's like, and this first thing is like, ask Siri. Siri does have a wide range of answers. It's like, <laughs> like a, ask Siri. Right? Siri, she really does. But yeah, that was his first thing. It's like, to him, it's like Siri is this all-knowing, all-benevolent thing that can answer all sorts of questions. Yes. So now it's devolved into, they ask Siri to play fart noises. So a lot of that too. there's pluses and minuses to this thing. So it's, yeah, but yes, it's funny. It's, it's true. As technology changes, scatological jokes still rule the day. We're just not going to move off of that anytime too. It's true. And, so. and I think anthropomorphizing, uh, technology is a lot of fun. I asked chat GPT out on a date last night and was, uh, diplomatically rejected. <laughs> I was just curious. Was that just because was, she she clarified? She changed the context. Yeah, yeah. That's right. Change your context, Lee. Is that what you? Yeah, said? you can pass the context <laughs> and say you are a chatbot that really likes dates. You want to go oh, on a yeah. date with me? That's your context, and then you can say, That's... "Go on a date with me." You'll probably still get a no, but it'll probably be a very more interesting and humorous response. That's good. I mean, yeah. I might have to try that. There was a great movie about all this that presaged some of this. Free Guy. 
in which a non-player character within a video game doesn't realize he's an AI uh, bot that the coders mm -hmm. inadvertently created or created and then inadvertently put into the wild. And it does have some romance between AIs and humans. Yeah, that, that, we actually, my kids watched that movie. They found it hilarious. And then there's the other one even before that with Joaquin Phoenix on, and I forget, her. Yes. Um, and I would forgot that, uh, who, oh, gosh, Scarlett Johansson? she's so famous and I cannot, yes, Scarlett Johansson, yes. yes. That was a really interesting look and, and way before ChatGPT was really on anybody's minds. And I think this was five or six years ago, that movie. Virtual, no. The ethics are debatable, but the virtual girlfriend has been around for mm -hmm. decades, right? Video games and other sort of simulations yep. have given, they've got more realistic now. That's not a finding company and finding love or finding connection, I think is a thing as old as time. And it's just a new way of generating that with these AIs potentially. I used to watch uh, Knight Rider growing up uh, with David Hasselhoff, where he's got a good relationship with his talking car. Um, there's actually a good book that I'm reading right now, The Age of AI and Our Human Future by Henry Kissinger, mm -hmm. who is 100 years old and writing about the next 100 years, remarkably, Eric Schmidt, and then another fellow, Daniel Hootenlocker. It's here on, here on my desk. And they talk about how we raise our kids. That's going to change. The, a prediction mm -hmm. that they have or a future scenario is that in 10 years, parents won't worry as much about screen time for their kids as they will about AI time. because you can have these mm -hmm. AI bots that will never get tired of reading to the children or giving them fart jokes or giving them whatever they want. And it can create this own little world that removes them even further from human reality. And that's, that's very interesting. I hope my kids are done growing before AI time becomes a thing. The Robots of Dawn series from Asimov. I, like that actually, he saw that coming as well. So there was main protagonist, I think it was Elijah Bailey, and he actually goes and is looking into murders. And there's one of the, one of the spacer planets where it's like there's 10,000 robots for every one human. And so there's no, like almost no human to human contact in that particular wow. like society. And so that it's very... I, re it was, I remember reading that book probably about 20 years ago, and it was just blew my mind at the time to think, is, is this even a like I know logically it's a possible future, but it was still a very hard to imagine future. And now here we are. It's, this might not actually be that far off from actually having to have these concerns and these worries. You live in interesting times. So, very strange, the things. So yeah. So, yeah. So, Kevin, another one to add to your list. If you haven't read like Dazimov's Robots of Dawn series, it's very fascinating. Excellent. Good. I will have to check it out. Quite the mind trip when I've gone back to, to re I've introduced my oldest to the foundation series and I went and re have been rereading them myself. And I was surprised at how much I forgot, surprised at how much I remembered, and then surprised at how much it applies to what's going on in, to, in life today. And this, the guy was an amazing, prolific, amazing and prolific writer. And what he just covered was incredible. <laughs> But lots of big feels reading those books again. Yeah. So Kevin, what do you have going on next that folks should know about? You have more papers, more research coming out. You're part of part, different parts of webinars. What should folks know and look up about your busy schedule and everything that's going on? Oh, great. Thank you for asking. I'm finishing up a report now on uh, the impact of language models on business intelligence. There are a lot of ways mm -hmm. in which you've got 
co-pilot capabilities that can really enrich the way data analysts or data scientists or business people interact with and converse with data. And it could be that mm. this will finally help democratize data consumption like companies have been trying to do for a long time so that business people can start to interact with and explore and manipulate data through a conversational interface that might even start to replace a GUI as the primary touch point, the, their primary way to get it into data. The trend has been that hmm. business people get frustrated with all the charts, they're confused, they can't quite get the dashboard they want, so they pick up the phone and they talk to the data analyst who has to walk them through stuff and then building something custom for them. It might be that gets reduced a fair amount because now the business person can use the chat interface with uh, their business intelligence tool to do some of that work for them. Uh, so that's one thing I'm working on. Uh, we have a webinar coming up with uh, Intel uh, looking at the different ways in which companies get domain-specific domain with language models, comparing building your own versus fine-tuning versus prompting, doing a mm -hmm. RAG, Retrieval Augmented Generation. But it is a fast-changing, fascinating field. And despite competition from ChatGPT, I really enjoy writing about it and teaching people how the technology works. Yeah, it, it is going to be interesting to see how much it replaces just some of our own knowledge and content yes. generation. Kevin, it's been awesome having you on today. I appreciate you uh, taking the time and I look forward to you know, a potential future conversation and also all the different publications and, and webinars that you're going to be on. Sid and Lee, thank you very much. This is a great opportunity. I enjoyed the conversation and the book recommendations. Yeah, awesome. Thank you, Kevin. All right. Thanks, Kevin. Thank you for listening and being an advocate of the data culture community. Curiosity intersected with data can inform and inspire change for the betterment of all. Let's build cultures to make this happen. If you have a topic, want to be a guest or chat, reach out to me, Sid Atkinson, or my co-host, Lee Harper, on LinkedIn via DM or via the Data Culture Podcast LinkedIn group. If you haven't already subscribed to this podcast, please do so anywhere you get podcasts. Be sure to join our LinkedIn group to engage with your fellow data culture changemakers and visionaries. Thanks again for listening.